what one thing that did surprise me again not that it was present but to the extent was the fear factor of self-reps the actual terror and that really is i i believe not an exaggeration it's the true word the terror of a self-rep that they would experience before walking into that courtroom Hello and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And this week, this is a very special interview, I think, because Julie is talking to Sue Rice, who is my predecessor as project coordinator for the organization. That's right. A number of the people listening will probably remember and will have met Sue. And she was the person who worked on the original SRL national study uh, in 2012 to 2013. And she traveled all over the country with me to persuade court services staff to promote the study to the SRLs in their courthouses. So she was an incredibly important person because she brought this um, spirit of positivity and indomitable, constantly looking for new people that we could recruit to the study and uh, energizing people and encouraging them to participate. Uh, Sue is talking in this conversation that I have with her about her experiences of that study. And she was also the project coordinator for the first two years of the NSRLP. Sue is now married and lives on Peely Island, but she remains a close friend and supporter of the project. Hello, Sue. Hi, I'm Julie. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank Good. you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I oh, think thank there you are... so much for asking. I think there are a lot of people who are very aware of the work that you did with the project in its early days and probably have had contact with you one way or another who are going to be quite excited to hear from you again and to know you're still out there. <laughs> yes, wonderful. So let's go back to the very beginning when I vividly remember um, taking you out for lunch and asking you if you would help me work on this project that I had just a tiny bit of funding for at the time, looking at how self-represented litigants were navigating the courts. And I knew you had the skills that I needed because I needed someone who was able to help me find and then talk with these folks about their experiences in a, an empathetic but also, you know, a skillful way. But of course, you know, you're in a better paying and more secure job, but you took a leap of faith. So why did you say yes that day, Sue? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, no one ever says no to Julia McFarlane. <laughs> <laughs> From what I seem to remember, um, oh but I know, terrible. But seriously, uh, I worked in social marketing before, and I had a lot of experience in that, especially with programs about social change and mental health. And I knew from the beginning when you presented your work to me that this was going to be a catalyst for change, uh, you know, in both the legal system and with the people and the participants of the legal system. And I don't think the country had ever seen anything like this before, and I could feel the magnitude of that. I think uh, at one point back in the very beginning of the research, there was some not-so-lovely feedback from a system insider, and you had 
we had been talking about it after you had that meeting and you seemed a bit shocked. And, you know, I laughed and I said, well, why do you think I signed up for this? I know it's going (laughs) to I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't mean that in a rebel sort of way. I mean that in a true belief that this would fundamentally change the way participants and a system insider look at how our legal system operates in Canada. You know, it's so interesting that you remember that particular piece because I, you know, have kind of forgotten now how much resistance we encountered to simply talking to self-represented litigants. We were always being told, oh, it's only the moaners that are talking to Mm -hmm. you. Exactly. And it was how you approached and how you set up the interview process, I believe, that really gave the voice of the self-rep a center stage. Not uh, particularly, you know, numbers and different things, but their true experience. And Mm -hmm. fundamentally, I just knew that this would make a difference somehow. I didn't know to this magnitude. I didn't have any expectations at the time, but I simply knew that I wanted to be a part of it. You and I went through about 12 months then of interviews and site visits in Alberta, Ontario and BC. And of course, as we did that work, you and I talked constantly both at home and on the road about what we were hearing. And I I always found it so interesting that we came at this from such different worlds because I'm traditionally trained lawyer, law professor, and you, of course, have your background in sociology and social marketing and PR. So say a little bit, Sue, about both what did and didn't surprise you about what we discovered in those 12 months. Okay. I'll start, I guess, with what didn't surprise me. What didn't surprise me, unfortunately, was the social class distinctions that we saw, mm. whether it be uh, how the self-reps were being uh, treated or even my own perceptions at times how I was being treated yes. because I didn't have a, a law degree. If I was introduced falsely as a lawyer at first and I corrected that statement, there was a shift. Until people got to know me. It was a little bit different later on after I had, with some of the community when I had proven myself. But in the beginning, that was a standard which instantly I was judged by. So you were not treated as credible because you couldn't say that you had a legal background. Correct. That I wouldn't have as much to contribute. And which you see your connection with people within the legal profession and and the community, not self-represented litigants here. Correct. No, self-reps, you know, maybe it was a little bit of the opposite, but they were happy I wasn't a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Not, you know, that's just a bit of a joke, but uh, a little tiny bit of underlying truth in that too. What also didn't surprise me, and again, this goes back to my work with social marketing around mental health, was the lack of understanding around mental health and what being a self-rep endured and the price they paid for trying to get themselves through the experience. You know, people, law is very factual. It's not very emotional, even though it deals with the most emotional issues we have. And I knew that was coming as well, that people just didn't see that. People didn't see the Mm -hmm. toll. People couldn't Mm -hmm. understand that. It, maybe someone seemed irrational because they were just so upset because they had been staying up the night before till 4 a.m. after a full day of work and taking care of kids trying to prepare for a case that they didn't 
know much about in the, pro- in the process, and it was intimidating. So that didn't surprise me um, either, unfortunately. What was really interesting to me, and I don't know if it was a surprise or not, but I found uh, one of my new terms became legalese, which was the language of law. And that was really interesting how different the language of law is compared to our regular spoken everyday Canadian English and what a barrier that put the a barrier that put up for people trying to yes. fill out forms coupled with being in a courtroom with that pressure and then words meaning different things. Yes, I remember you put this up as a Facebook discussion. It was pretty hilarious. We got some yeah. very good examples. And it's so, it's so symbolic of, of the insider-outsider barrier that really mm-hmm. is reflected in everything you've said so far, that there are different understandings of what's going on in this process and what the experience is like, whether people are doing it from the inside as a self-rep or from the outside as someone in the professional community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. What One thing that did surprise me, again, not that it was present, but to the extent, was the fear factor of self-reps. The actual terror, and that really is, I, I believe, not an exaggeration, it's the true word, the terror of a self-rep that they would experience before walking into that courtroom. I don't like people seeing being bullied. I don't like people being lost and I, I do want to help that's just my nature mm-hmm. and when I see that kind of courage happening around me I feel a social responsibility to help yeah. because I believe we all deserve true access to justice it was really difficult for people to relive their experiences and share their situation they, they felt shame they there was that feeling of they might be perceived as stupid or gullible or worse, you know, a quote unquote crazy self reps. And they were they did it back into a traumatic experience. Oh, right. But they did it anyway. They came mm. and they told you and I, these total strangers, I mean many of the first interviews too were done by telephone. And they came and told us these stories. And to witness that kind of bravery was just an honor and it was so inspiring. Like I said, that just ignited my sense of social responsibility. Almost always the closing comments were, I never want anyone else to go through what I did. And that's why I'm talking to you. I was wondering if you can pull out your best memory of the early years of the project when we were still on the road doing the research. After we finished the research and were about to present it at what we called the dialogue event, one of my favorite moments happened. Um, something really fascinating happens when you take away established social parameters, which we normally use to base mm-hmm. our initial impressions on of someone. And what we did is we, I remember this, it, it was one of those kind of moments of aha. We decided to only put people's first names on their name tag for the dialogue. Ah, uh, yes. For the dinner. So it was full. Right. So it was John, Mary, and what was really fascinating that happened that everyone knew that each person in the room had been chosen and invited. And they were and say a bit about who they were because there was a so, real range yeah. of people there. Well yeah, definitely. There were self reps, there were judges, there were frontline workers, there were lawyers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the courts were represented, some yep. legal agencies, bar association, different types of things. Right. And, all, and we threw the, the woman into a room to the, together for dinner. Right. Right. And lock the doors from the outside. No. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, so everyone knew they were invited. Everyone knew everyone else in the room was invited. But that was really interesting was there was still a bit of unease because normally what people will do to open an initial conversation is kind of, hi, who are you? What do you do? But to open a conversation with, are you a self-rep? Uh, yeah. It is a little, it's a little bit intimidating. So people were kind of forced, in a way, gently, to find other commonalities to begin their conversations on. You know, they had to have regular conversations. Say they were at a backyard right. barbecue, meeting yeah. other neighbors down the street, and they they couldn't rely on their identity as a self-rep or a judge right. or a lawyer. They just had to plunge in socially. Exactly, and they had to establish you know commonalities to go on with from outside of the legal system. They couldn't let the legal system titles define them. You know, this was a, wasn't a courtroom, this was dinner. It was really interesting that it established a different way of talking and listening to one another right from the very beginning. And that, you know, really carried on through the whole dialogue event. Listening to you is making me feel like going back on the road again. Thank you so much for the honor for today, being able to talk about the project. And I, I always feel so much pride and gratitude in being able to work on this project with you. So thank you very much. I really found that conversation with Sue very interesting partly out of uh, curiosity because as, as uh, we mentioned she had this position before me and I just find it fascinating to hear you both talking about uh, all of the work you did for the original study which is of course a document that I'm pretty familiar with at this point so it's really cool to hear kind of the background mm -hmm. information about that and you talked a lot about uh, what surprised her or didn't surprise her about yeah. that process and I thought it was interesting. One of the things that I took particular note of was when she said uh, that she really noticed there was a shift in how she was perceived when she was talking to legal system insiders, lawyers, judges, whoever, when they realized that she wasn't a lawyer and didn't have a law degree. And then there was this perceptible kind of change in how they talk to her yeah. and related to her. And they I thought she was less important. Exactly. And I was kind of reflecting on this and thinking, oh, that's interesting. I, like, have I noticed that? And I thought and thought, and I kind of came to the conclusion that I haven't. And then I was thinking, well, why is that? Because I'm in the same position. I don't have a law degree, and I'm in the same position that Sue was in. And my, my guess is that there's a big shift in the last, you know, five years in the clout of this organization. At the time mm. Sue was having these conversations with people, there wasn't really an NSRLP. And no, this was... we were totally unknown quantity. Right, exactly. And you were kind of bugging people by barging into the legal space and, and pushing on this topic. And now this organization has been around for five years and has gained, I think, quite a high level of respect in the justice system. And so when I go and represent the organization or talk to people, I'm not noticing that shift. And so my theory mm. is that that's the reason. Well, it's so interesting hearing you say that. I mean, this was something that definitely was part of Sue's experience all the way through and also for the first couple of years when she was the project coordinator. And I think you're right. I think it has a lot to do with the credibility of the organization because I do think that legal system insiders still have a hard time talking with people that they don't regard as experts on their level. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, the way that we now see it, if you like, the kind of the next challenge is there is still an enormous hesitation and tentativeness around talking to members of the public. I mean, you, Dana, come with, as you say, you know, the credentials of the organization. Um, but there are lots of SRLs out there who have really important and insightful contributions to make to the process of changing the system who are still not being included in the conversation because of this reluctance to talk to anybody who isn't a legal expert. Right. One of the other things that uh, stood out to me about your conversation with Sue was, so she talked about being unsurprised by the lack of understanding in the justice system of the mental toll mm. that this takes this process tends to take on SRLs. Um, but she was surprised by, I guess, kind of the level of that mental toll when yeah. all of these SRLs were talking about their terror. Yes. Um, which is a very strong word to use. Yes. But I think it is appropriate based on, you know, what we hear from SRLs. And that took her by surprise. And it is an interesting thing because that's been something that's very difficult to get the system to recognize. Right, and it's a consistent theme. And I think that both Sue and I expected that we would find people saying, yes, this is really difficult, but the but the sheer emotional toll that it was taking on so many of the people that we met and we interviewed, I think really surprised both of us. Sue had a background doing some mental health work and, you know, and she was really struck by this. Um, I think that's still something that we're struggling with, is trying to communicate uh, to both lawyers and future lawyers that a big part of what they can do to help people who are primarily self-represented is not only provide them with expert advice, which is where we tend to focus our attention, but also just provide them with emotional support. And we're not asking lawyers to be therapists or, you know, or psychoanalysts. We're just really trying to emphasize the importance of feeling that somebody is listening to you and can give you some sympathetic empathy because so many self-represented litigants feel like nobody is really listening and nobody really understands. So one little tidbit that I really liked was the story about the name tags at the mm -hmm. at the dialogue mm -hmm. event that you held and how it was Sue's fantastic idea. I agree, it's a great idea to only put first names on those tags and so everybody had to interact on a level playing field and not be hemmed in by the labels that the justice system had given them, whether it was judge or lawyer or SRL or clerk or yeah. counter staff or whatever. Uh, so I just think that's a great idea, and I think that's something that we might want to consider repeating because we're going to kind of make a little announcement here and say that as this spring is the fifth anniversary of the founding of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project and... Our original dialogue event. Exactly, five years since that event. So we're going to hold another one, and it'll be uh, kind of a where-are-we-now dialogue event. Mm -hmm. We're going to look back at the report that was uh, generated out of that original dialogue event and say, okay, um, have we have we met our goals? Um, what have we done? Where are we headed? And of course, because it's it's five years, we also will celebrate a little bit. Absolutely. Nice and uh, I, I think this is a wonderful idea. And uh, for the benefit of people listening, stay posted. Um, we will be sending out invitations again in order that we can make this a small and intimate group, just like it was the first time. 
We will have self-represented litigants there, and we will also have judges and lawyers and legal aid board managers and policy folks, and I'm sure an incredibly impressive group of people to go to work looking at just how far have we come in the last five years. In other news, the Canadian Civil Justice Forum has just released the latest in its series of reports on the costs of justice. This report focuses on the physical and mental health consequences of experiencing legal problems and is co-authored by Lisa Moore, A.B. Curie, Nicole Elwin, Trevor Farrow, and Paul D. Libero. The study concludes that almost one in three people dealing with a legal problem will experience a physical health problem, and 65% report seeing their physician more often than usual during this period. Further, the study estimates that stress caused by legal problems results in 2 million visits to a healthcare professional for counseling or to address stress. As the study authors conclude, Upholding health as a priority demands that actions be taken to diminish the negative impact of everyday legal problems on health. And finally, like so many other members of the legal community, we are deeply saddened at NSRLP by news of the death of Simon Fodden. Simon was an amazing innovator. In a wonderful irony, he became the trailblazer for the Canadian online legal community after his retirement from Osgoode Hall Law School. As the founder of SLAW, Canada's premier online legal forum, he has left us a tremendous legacy. Julie writes, Simon was a longtime colleague who was always supportive and encouraging to me. Moreover, he was a person of great kindness and great humor. Like many others, I shall miss him greatly. As usual, links related to these stories can be found on our podcast webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. That's all for jumping off the ivory tower this week. Join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Jake McGee, Julie's gynecological oncologist. He and Julie discuss how doctors and patients can talk frankly and realistically about cancer. It's a wonderful, moving conversation, and you won't want to miss it. 